This is Redemption Radio with Pastor Cody King of Redemption Calvary in Commerce City, Colorado. Here's a preview from Pastor Cody of today's message. Jesus has words filled with grace and hope here in the middle of it all. The reason is because there is no sin that is so deep that the grace of God cannot reach further still. You have not placed yourself outside of the grace of God. That is a lie that the enemy likes to tell very many of us. That somehow you have done something so heinously terrible that God now has rejected you. The only sin that God cannot forgive is the sin that you will not confess and repent of. The sin that you will not bring before him. The Bible calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're pretty good at screwing up relationships. There's so many things we can do to lose people's trust or respect. Maybe you know what it feels like to push people too far and end up alone. Today, Pastor Cody lovingly reminds us that God's threshold for moral behavior is much higher than our own. If the heart is willing, there is nothing that can separate you from Christ. His compassion covers all of your mistakes, both internal and external. Don't think that anything you've done is beyond God's saving grace. Now, turn in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 23 as Pastor Cody continues his message, A Saying of Promise. You ever felt dirty from sin? You ever done something that just made you feel dirty? No matter how many showers you take, you just can't get clean. Because you can't clean yourself. It's only the blood of Jesus. It's only through his cross. That's the only way we're cleansed. And so we have this first response there in Acts 2.37. But also, a couple chapters later in Acts 7.54, we have something very, very similar that's stated. Uh, Here, instead of Peter preaching, now it's Stephen. And as Stephen is preaching the gospel, something very similar takes place. Notice what it says in Acts 7.54. It says, when they heard these things, sounds familiar, they were cut to the heart. Sounds very familiar. But notice what it says. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. And then they went on to literally murder him by killing him with stones. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. It says they stopped up their ears and they stoned him to death. The same gospel is presented. The same thing takes place. They were cut to the heart, but something totally different takes place in both these instances. In one place, they repent, they turn to Jesus, they forsake their sin, they accept his grace. In the other, they rebelliously commit murder and dive deeper into sin. These are the only two options that we have. You can either have a heart of repentance or a heart of rebellion, but the heart of the hearer is what makes all the difference in the world. The repentant criminal, he corrects the rebellious one. Did you notice that in verse 40? It says, but the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing that you're under the same condemnation? He corrects this rebellious criminal, this, uh, his, his friend, uh, his partner in crime, if you will. He, he corrects him and rebukes him with extreme clarity. Notice what he brings up. He says, do you not even fear God? He points out for us the the thing that matters the most. You see, the fear of God is the tipping point on which a life either ascends to godliness or descends into depravity. The fear of God is not necessarily to be afraid of God, though there is a healthy component of that within it, but it's a reverence toward God, exalting Him and honoring Him and glorifying Him for who He is. It's this fear that is the foundation for wisdom, the foundation for holiness, the foundation for everything good and lovely and pure and godly. Everything that's right in life comes out of this. It's the fear of God. 
without the fear of God, it's the total opposite. That if there is no fear of God, everything that is wrong with life, everything that is sinful, everything that is depraved, everything that is fallen and broken and destroyed with the world, everything that is that comes out of not having the fear of God. The fear of God is everything. It's the tipping point on which a life either goes to the Lord or away from him. This man has not the fear of God. And because of that, foolishness and shame and depravity are pouring forth from him. One man is saying, get me down. And the other one is saying, lift me up. Very different hearts. Very different things taking place here. And Jesus, Jesus is there in the middle of it all. Just because Jesus can get you out of that painful or difficult situation doesn't mean that he is going to or even that he should. Just because he can doesn't mean that he's going to. It's not a good argument to say, well, you're God, you can do anything, therefore get me out of this. That's that's what this guy's saying. If you're God, prove it, get me out of this situation. That is not a godly prayer. Just because Jesus can take you out of it doesn't mean that he will or even that he should. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says this, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. Uh, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you, you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Listen to this part. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a different kind of a sorrow that when the word of God cuts you to the heart, that you're going to have some sort of response to it. It will cause sorrow to fill you, but there is a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, and they produce completely different things, as different as light is from darkness, as death is from life. That this sorrow is produced. Worldly sorrow is essentially to say, I'm sorry I got caught. Prisons filled with these kinds of people. Not necessarily repentant, but sorry they got caught. Godly sorrow is to say that I'm sorry that I've offended God. I recognize my sin is against him and I don't want it to be. I'm sorry that I've offended God. I think it's interesting here that, that he says, um, here in verse 42, that the, this criminal, he says, to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is his request. This is his prayer. Filled with humility. Notice he doesn't ask for any kind of place of exaltation or Jesus, hook me up. I mean, hey, we're dying together. We're bros. I should have a cool place in your kingdom. He doesn't even say that. He just says, remember me. Very, very humble thing that he says here. I don't deserve it, but maybe, it, maybe you could remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think it's interesting because for two to three years, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about his kingdom and somehow they all missed it. The guys that were closest to him, that they spent years with him, that they'd performed miracles by his ability. They saw him do crazy things and, and they didn't understand the kingdom of God. They all thought Jesus is dead and the kingdom is gone before it even started. And so they all run away. They're all filled with sorrow. And even later, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, they don't even believe it, even though he told them, hey guys, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise from the dead. And then they're told, Jesus is raised. And they go, yeah, yeah, whatever. You guys, are, you're seeing stuff. You're just making up stories to convince yourself uh, of something. But instead, this man is able to see what Jesus is trying to communicate. How crazy. Not a disciple. Not someone who had been around Jesus and, and experienced his teaching necessarily. Maybe from the outskirts, he'd maybe heard Jesus say some things. 
but not close by any means. And he gets the kingdom of God. Somehow, some way, he's able to understand it. The disciples had no hope that Jesus would conquer death, and that his kingdom was over before it even began in their minds. But somehow this man is able to have hope in Jesus beyond the grave. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no, there's no way out of a Roman cross. You guys get that? Like when you're nailed to that cross, the only way out is death. That's the only way you get off. And they are there to make sure that that takes place. And somehow this man has hope beyond the grave. And and he asks Jesus to perform something, requesting that he has authority that's beyond the grave. It's amazing what what he says. The insight that he has is nothing short of miraculously given by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That God is is literally placing within him the capacity to understand. Henry Halley says this. He observes uh, that Jesus returned to God and he bore in his arms the soul of a robber, the first fruits of his mission to redeem a world. Many theologians would say that this man is the first man to get saved. The first man to really get the kingdom of God and to have his faith placed in Jesus dying for him. Matthew Henry in his commentary on the whole Bible uh, says this on page 1521. This malefactor, he's kind of of an old English, all right? So the words you may not necessarily use in the sentence structure may feel weird. I'm going to try to read it in a way that makes sense, but try to track. It says, this malefactor when just ready to fall into the hands of Satan, was snatched as a brand from the burning and made a monument of divine mercy and grace. And Satan was left to roar as a lion disappointed of his prey. That's this man. This is us when we place our faith in Jesus. Snatched as a a coal from the burning fire. The descending to hell, Jesus rescues us. Nothing good that we've done in ourselves, nothing uh, amazing that we've been able to accomplish, but that he reaches into our mess and says, I love you. Salvation comes at the last for this man, but it's no reason to think that you can somehow tempt fate and wait until the last minute. There are those who do get saved literally on their deathbeds, but that is very, very few and far between. And it's uh, sufficient to say that it is foolish to say that you should wait for that. I, don't, I do not regret any of my days living for Jesus. Not a single one. I do regret that I did not come to him sooner. I regret the things that I did prior to knowing him, prior to submitting myself to him, when he was pursuing me. I look back and I see it. I see that he was there. And he was trying. But my heart was hardened in rebellion. That's what I regret. I don't regret any days living for the Lord. I have not lost anything of any value by coming to Jesus. I've only gained. I've only gained. There's no reason to wait. Thirdly and finally, we see not only the perspective of the world and the perspective of the saved, but the promise of Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 43 with me, if you would. It says, And Jesus said to him, a very simple sentence, but packed with meaning and, and value and purpose. It says this, Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. The, the word assuredly there is the, where we get the, the phrase, amen. Um, it's truly, truly. Maybe your, your translation says that. Um, if you've ever said amen at the end of a prayer, you're saying that. It's, just, it's this word of agreement or this word of saying, this is true. You can bet on this. 
And so Jesus is saying this is an absolute certainty. This is not hyperbole or something that is in the distance as, well, I hope so. Like, I hope it doesn't snow later. Um, This is a very certain and sure thing that he is saying. He has no reply or no response for the man reviling at him. He only has something to say to the one who is filled with humility and repentance. One of these men departs this life with a curse and the other with a blessing. Jesus has words filled with grace and hope here in the middle of it all. The reason is because there is no sin that is so deep that the grace of God cannot reach further still. You have not placed yourself outside of the grace of God. That is a lie that the enemy likes to tell very many of us. That somehow you have done something so heinously terrible that God now has rejected you. The only sin that God cannot forgive is the sin that you will not confess and repent of the sin that you will not bring before him. The Bible calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the unforgivable sin. There's only one. The unforgivable sin is to reject the cross of Jesus as your means of salvation and hope. It's the only sin that that God cannot forgive. It's the only sin that condemns you and damns you to eternity of separation and hell. But on the other hand, anything that you've ever done, any sin you've ever committed, no matter how deeply depraved, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how much you wish no one to ever, ever find out about it. Jesus knows about it. He does. And he died for it. He paid the price. And so Jesus here on the cross responds. And as he responds, he's telling us that rebels and traitors are not only pardoned by him, but favored by this king who will lay down his life for them. He has favor. Notice what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, well, I mean, I'll kind of put you on the outside of heaven. Maybe you can catch some of the glow on the outside there. You can have a shack over there. No. He says, you're going to be with me in paradise. This is crazy. There's three significant things that Jesus says in this response that give hope to this man. And they also give hope to us as we look at what he has to say, okay? I want to quickly point these out for you. Jesus here, he says, number one, today. You see that there? Today. There's a time associated with this, and the time is right now. It's immediate. There's no waiting. There's no place of of soul sleep or purgatory that Jesus talks about in any way. That that those are man-made concepts that are not biblical. That, That Jesus says, today. That there is an assurance of, this, of your salvation and it's right here, right now, that when you breathe your last on this earth, it's to breathe your first in God's presence in heaven. That it's an instant. It's a moment. That there's no transition time. That Jesus promises a foretelling of the future and he speaks with a clear authority and knowledge. Do you see that? Jesus isn't wavering. He says, assuredly, I say to you, truly, truly, verily, verily, Jesus is saying that this is a certainty and you can count on it because I've been there and I know where I'm going. For us, we don't know, right? That's why death is so scary because we don't know what happens. We have to trust and place our faith in something. And I choose to place my faith in the words of Jesus where he says, assuredly, you're going to be with me. You have the hope of eternity. This is not a vague hope, but a certain assurance spoken by someone with Very clear authority and knowledge. Notice that what he says there, secondly, he says, today, he says, you will be with me. See that there, that Jesus says that? He says, you will be with me, that there is company. 
That when you die, you don't, you don't just kind of go into nothingness. You don't become a, a bug or a cow uh, or, you know, another neighbor or something. You don't, that doesn't happen. You don't become part of the force and then you get to come back in a hologram. It's not what takes place. The truth of the matter is that you are with somebody and that somebody is Jesus. That somebody is Jesus. Yes, there are friends and family members and, and people that we know and love they have, that have gone before us and there are those who we know that have the assurance of salvation and they're in heaven waiting us. And yes, so we will be reunited with them. But that is not the greatest person you will meet. That if, if you're hoping to meet them in heaven, that the first thing that they're going to do is say, hey, it's good to see you. Let me take you to Jesus. That's the most important relationship. That Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven what it is. It's God himself. Jesus himself, he says, I'm headed to paradise and you're going to come with me. What a great promise that Jesus says here. His death is not a defeat, but it's a significant sacrificial victory. Not only for himself, but also for us. That it's because of Jesus that we have the hope of heaven. That we have the hope of eternity. He speaks authoritatively because he knows where he's headed and he knows that he may bring others with him. The perfect life of Jesus is fully accepted by the Father and there's no doubt about that in Jesus' mind. He knows he's not dying for his own sins or somehow God has abandoned him. He knows exactly what he's doing and what's taking place. And so he has this hope of eternity that, that heaven itself is defined by the presence of Jesus. Notice thirdly, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. Notice that it's somewhere. It's somewhere. It's not just this vague nothingness. You don't just cease to exist, but that there's somewhere we're headed and this somewhere is heaven. Now, Jesus promises paradise, not a holding cell of purgatory, like we said, not, a, not an unconscious existence of soul sleep, but paradise. For the believer to breathe your last here on earth is to breathe your first in heaven. It's just like a baby. That when a baby is, is in the womb and it comes to be that the baby now must be born, that, that what has to take place is the baby has to, in a sense, die to the womb in order to be born to this world. The baby can't stay in the womb and be in this world, right? You've got to leave that to get here. The same is true for the believer, for the Christian, that death is nothing more than a doorway we walk through. That we walk through this, leaving behind this world and going forward to the one ahead. That this paradise is promised and awaiting us. Write down, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54. It says that we have to, just like you sow a seed and then a, a plant grows forth, your body must be sown into the ground in death in order for you to reap everlasting life. That this body's not fit for eternity. I wouldn't want to take this dang thing anyway. It's breaking all the time. The older I get, I'm not that old, but the older I get, the more I realize this thing is broken and destroyed. It's not awesome. I thought it was awesome about 10 years ago. I'm like, man, this is great. Uh, it's not that way anymore. Man, I, got, I just got more and more problems. And those of you who are older than me, you, you can say you, get, you don't even know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> Paradise is promised and it's defined by the presence of Jesus, not necessarily a destination. You got to get that. Paradise is not the place. It's not a destination. It's not like your, your destination vacation or your destination wedding. It's not that. It's who's with you. Can you imagine taking the most epic, awesome vacation ever by yourself? That's terrible. <laughs> Unless you're just super selfish, I guess that you might have a good time. But even at that, 
You want to you celebrate this with somebody. You want to take pictures and share it with people. That people, someone else gives what it is value, not the place itself. It's the people you're with. That my home is not located at an address. That address changes all the time. It's here, then it's there, then it's somewhere else. The home that I have is the people that are there with me. That's what makes it a home. You see, it's not this place, but who is there. And it's defined, paradise is defined by Jesus. Now, there's debate as to where paradise is located and exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And there are two prevalent views. And I'm I'm just going to go over this very quickly because we could do an entire message on this. But I'm just going to just kind of throw this out there for you for food for thought, all right? There are two prevalent views that, number one, Jesus, when he's talking about paradise, he's talking about heaven itself. And secondly, he's talking about a place called Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom comes out of Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There's a whole piece in there about Abraham's bosom. And I'll reference it here in a second. But I believe Jesus was literally talking about multiple things at once. In the Old Testament, when you read the prophets, what you see is that the prophets, when they're speaking, they're not just talking about a single thing or a single time. Typically, they're talking about three things, all in one verse. In one verse, a prophet can be talking about three separate time frames. Think of it like standing on a mountain range and you're at one peak. And then as you look out, you see multiple peaks out there. That's like when the prophet is speaking. It's not a lot of detail about the valleys and how you get there. But as he's talking, he's speaking about his time, this immediate context. Also speaking of the near future and the fulfillment of the prophecy then, but also a distant future prophecy being fulfilled, all in the same context of this one prophecy. And I believe Jesus is doing very much the same thing here. He's speaking of multiple things. I think he's talking about both and, not either or. I don't take one side of the argument over the other. I think it's both of them. We find this final destination he's speaking about is absolutely to be the, the home eternally of heaven. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, He who has an ear, Jesus is speaking, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, listen, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's speaking of heaven. That's what he's talking about. Paradise of God is referred to as heaven itself. And at the end of Revelation, we see that God burns up this creation in a fervent heat and creates a new heaven and a new earth where we're able to live with him forever in eternity. That this is this final destination. But simultaneous to that, I also see that in Luke chapter 16, like we referenced, that Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Both of them have died and they're both being held somewhere and they can actually see one another and speak to one another, okay? That this place is referred to here as Abraham's bosom. And it's described as having essentially two compartments being in the earth and that there, are, there is this two-compartment place where the saints of old pre-cross of Jesus, that that's where they went. This is where the whole concept of purgatory comes from, by the way. That that's where they, they went to wait for the redemption of Jesus because there is no access to heaven apart from the blood and the cross of Jesus. So they had to wait for the redemption of their souls. In Ephesians 4, we're told that Jesus descended and he led captivity captive. This is when, when Jesus died and he rose again, he brought with him the saints of old that were awaiting their redemption and that they are immediately transferred into heaven. This is what took place. But there's two parts to this. One part would be paradise on one side, and the other half of this, the other compartment of this, would be Hades or Sheol or the grave or the place of the dead. There was suffering that was taking place here. 
Jesus, this side of the cross, is able to usher in his people. And I believe that as he's speaking of paradise here, he's talking about both. He's saying to the thief, you're going to be with me in paradise, there. And then when I raise from the dead, you're going to go with me to heaven. This is the purchase price of your redemption. The question we must ask ourselves today is, which criminal best describes me? I want you to think on that. Which criminal best describes me? Is my life defined by rebellion or by repentance? Repentance is not a single thing you do once, but it's a continual thing that we do over and over and over before the Lord. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to grant access to both of these men, and yet only one received it while the other rejected it. God's grace is extended to you today. The question is, will you receive it? You've been listening to Redemption Radio with Pastor Cody King of Redemption Calvary in Commerce City, Colorado. Thanks for tuning in for today's study. There's much more to learn from the series called Seven Last Sayings of Jesus. We encourage you to tune in again. In addition to that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? That way you'll not miss an addition and you can even leave a comment. If you're enjoying these messages, you can learn more about Redemption Radio and Pastor Cody by visiting our website at redemptioncalvary.org. There you can explore other teachings from Pastor Cody's verse-by-verse studies and find out how you can join us for worship this weekend. Redemption Calvary gathers every Sunday to connect with God and each other. We'd love to see you. You'll be able to find service times, directions, and all the information you need at redemptioncalvary.org. We're also live streaming on YouTube and Facebook if you're unable to be with us in person. If you have any questions, feel free to give us a call at 720-466-5358. Be sure to let us know how we can be praying for you too. Again, that's 720-466-5358. Our time with you today has come to a close. But be sure to catch Pastor Cody's message next time. We're excited for you to have the opportunity to hear what God wants to speak to you. Here on Redemption Radio.